I'm Daniel Scarpinato. My friends call me Scarp. I've been blessed to have a really great career in journalism, media, and politics. Along the way, I've become friends and, I would say, frenemies with some of the most interesting people. Some of them are famous, some infamous, and some completely unknown. We're turning on the mics now to discuss people, politics, and, well, pretty much everything else. So please sit back, relax, grab a drink, jump on the treadmill, whatever. Please enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to a new episode of Scarf and Friends. Good to have everyone here. We're 53 days from the November election. It'll be here before we know it. It's uh, kind of amazing that it's upon us, but uh, it really is that time of year when you just can't avoid politics. And last week we had a great show with Danny Seiden, CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and Industry, for a recap of the gubernatorial forum that he hosted, the only forum so far. And then we learned since then officially that there will not be another one. There will be no debates um, and probably no additional forums because Katie Hobbs, who's the Democratic nominee for governor here in the great state of Arizona, has said, I don't, I'm not going to debate. I'm not going to debate. And what to me is so interesting about this, and so many people have asked me, what what I think is that it was the Democrats who pushed through this whole clean elections system that's in place some 20 years ago. Um, and now, A, none of them are even running with clean elections. They're all now big fans of so-called dark money and all these outside groups. They just love it. And the, one of the key parts of clean elections was that they would hold all these debates. And long behold, now they don't even like that because I think in, in um, Secretary Hobbs's case, she, I think she's incapable of engaging in one of these debates. And um, I, I, I don't know how you run for the top office in the state without engaging in some kind of uh, debate where you talk about your ideas. And, you know, Lori Roberts, who's a columnist at the Arizona Republic, who isn't exactly a conservative. She is definitely, you know, I think she, she goes after both sides. And I've known Lori a long time. Um, and we've we've disagreed I think on more than we've agreed on but we we do get along but she was very critical of Katie Hobbs and again she I would say Lori is definitely left of center on the issues um, and her headline Katie Hobbs is a hard no on debating Carrie Lake transforming herself into in her words a total weakling and I think that to me, this is when people say, well, what impact does this whole episode have? And I didn't initially think that this would have the ripple effect that it has had. But this has now been at least a two, maybe three week story, bad story for Katie Hobbs, very bad earned media 
around this. It's really dominated this race. And I think it's really cut through. I think regular people, regular voters didn't know who she was. She already started off with a name ID disadvantage to Carrie Lake, who was on television for nearly 30 years here in, uh, in Phoenix and has 90 plus percent name ID. Um, and this was people's first introduction of Katie Hobbs. And the fact of the matter is that with a governor's race, this is different in my opinion than a Senate race, than a congressional race. This isn't just, how are you gonna vote? What's your position on this issue or the other one? This is really about, can you lead the state? Can you be the chief executive officer of the state of Arizona? Do you have the strength and fortitude to do that? And I think that this telegraphs insecurity, weakness, as Lori Roberts pointed out, I think it it highlights all the opposite characteristics that you should be displaying if you want to be governor. So I do think it's a big problem. People have asked me, so I'm, I'm sharing my thoughts. I do think it's a big political problem for Secretary Hobbs. And the other thing that I thought was so fascinating, because we've heard nothing uh, but these cries, and I'm a former reporter, and I, I, I actually do respect the media and their role, although I do think it, they've gone bonkers, and, you know, generally speaking, the, the media landscape is, is gotten further and further to the left, and there aren't, there isn't enough diversity of thought or opinion in the media, um, but we've heard nothing from the Democrats other than the media, the media, the media. President Trump should be should have, you know, been more respectful to the media and to the press and to the fourth estate. But one of the most telling things I thought for me from that event uh, that the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and Industry put on was that afterwards, Secretary of Hobbs actually didn't even take questions. She ran out mm -hmm. and ignored the media's questions. So I just think that there's real trouble um, for that campaign. Um, again, um, and I said this a, a couple weeks ago on Dennis Welsh's show, Politics Unplugged, um, Democrats have been saying this for some time, privately, quietly. It's been the worst kept secret in town and no one is willing to say it out loud, but Democrats don't believe that she was the right candidate or the best candidate to put forward. Um, and I think you're starting to see signs of that. The other thing that uh, came out this week is uh, the new inflation numbers. And it's uh, not good. Um, and in fact, we had some really Arizona-specific data that came out from the Common Sense Institute of Arizona, which is a, a nonpartisan uh, research think tank. And Glenn Farley, who's the, the policy director, who's, I think, one of the smartest minds in the state and really knows how to look at this data, found that at 13% year-over-year price inflation 
in the Phoenix metro area is above both the national average but also the highest level ever recorded for the Phoenix metro area. And one thing I don't understand is why more Republicans aren't talking about this. Um, Inflation and the economy remain the number one issues. And I really think it doesn't matter what a candidate is running for, whether it's Congress or statewide office. Um, It doesn't matter what statewide office. I think that they all need to be talking about what we're seeing from an inflationary standpoint. And the really interesting thing is, and this is where I think you can uh, really see that this is a vulnerability for the Democrats, is that read the statements and look at the ads that they're putting out. They never talk about inflation and they never say cost of living. Mark Kelly and Katie Hobbs use this word costs. We need to reduce costs. And I really believe that's because they don't want to be seen as saying anything that's critical of the Biden administration and that inflation and cost of living have become monikers for everything that people don't like about what's happening happening in Washington and with this administration. So I think this is a real opening for Republican candidates, and I don't see a ton of them taking advantage of it. Some are, but people are really getting sidetracked by other issues, and this is the number one issue. It was, uh, I think, uh, somebody, uh, um, James Carville, who said it's the economy, stupid. It was a famous quote in the 90s, and I think everyone needs to just embed embed that in their in their heads here and you know and somebody who who is behind the scenes here is Blake Wilson who who a lot of people have said this is really well done they like the podcast the listenership has gotten better and better and we're able to track it geographically so we've got certainly a lot of folks in Arizona who are listening but a lot of people in DC Um, and around the country who are tuning in to this podcast. So Blake is the guy who's a longtime friend of mine who helped produce this and put it all together. And Blake, you pointed out a story to me the other day about Democratic candidates who have lost, who are basically now celebrities for losing, and I think it mentioned Beto O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams, and Charlie Crist, who was a Republican, is now a Democrat and running for governor in Florida. And I think this is an interesting phenomenon that you, if you're a Democrat, you lose an election, and, and now you're you're famous for that. Yeah, you know, a lot of these people, they weren't famous beforehand. If you didn't know their name, they became the darling of the left, and you get Stacey Abrams, who, mm-hmm. in her mind, was on the short list for VP, and and you get because she because she put herself on the list, <laughs> right? The original election denier, uh, exactly. But then you have Beto O'Rourke, who lost by three points and became super popular by saying crazy stuff and jumping on tables and shouting down her opposing people, and it's ironic to me that Charlie Crist who actually was elected at one point, mm-hmm. switched parties, and now joins the uh, the slate of Stacey Abrams and these 
candidates who are celebrities for being candidates. Not and he gets more tan every time he loses one of these races. Florida's just <laughs> been super good for him. They're um, also all going to lose, I think. Again, I don't see any of them having a path to victory. They're all down in the polls. Um, Stacey Abrams, who... Um, came really close last time is not doing well she's really floundering I think people view her as I think she she even attacked Georgia and said this is a horrible place why would anybody want to live here Um, Charlie Crist is is way down and just totally damaged as a candidate and I just don't see any pathway for Beto O'Rourke in in Texas it feels like these are total vanity campaigns just to like sell more books and stuff well, Washington Post did that spread on Stacey Abrams a few years back where she's, you know, wearing a superhero cape. And, and so we know how she sees herself. Well, it is interesting. And, and I will say, you know, bringing it back to Arizona and we were talking about the governor's race and um, and it is tight. I will say you look at all the polling and there's there's a lot of public polling on the race. And, you know, it's like. Um, you know, Carrie Lake, 48, Katie Hobbs, 46, Katie Hobbs, 47, Carrie Lake, 46, tied at 49, 49. And you see not a lot of movement. It's all within the margin of error. The undecideds are a very small group. I still think it's going to be um, a good Republican year. So I believe that Carrie Lake has the edge and particularly with some of the issues we talked about about how poor of a campaign Katie Hobbs is running and her inability to to really get out there and talk about what she wants to do um, I think that uh, that that will uh, the state will go red and will go Republican um, but clearly things are really tight um, on these races I think up and up and down and the one I think that may have been surprising to people that it has remained tight is the U.S. Senate race, and we did have some polling that has come out recently on that, and uh, this was from Emerson College, and it had Kelly at 47, Masters at 45, you know, again, within the margin. And I think that's where the state is, quite frankly. I, I don't see any scenario under which anyone wins these races by more than a few points, and in uh, 2020, we had, you know, all these polls that came out that said Mark Kelly's going to win by, by 10 points, you know, and again, it was very close. So I think this one is going to be close. And the most, I think the most telling thing, when you look at the amount of money that Mark Kelly is spending, it's, you know, a hundred million dollars plus, I think he'll exceed what he did last time. And that's what $100 million gets you is not 50%, 47, and a tied race. And so I think it's really telling, um, and I've said this before, I don't think he is a great candidate. I think he clearly has huge fundraising abilities. He's got an an incredible bio, um, but he hasn't exactly done much to distinguish himself from Democrats in the Senate or from Chuck Schumer. And um, I don't think he's done a ton that anybody could point to. So 
Blake, I think this is going to stay a pretty close race. Well, if there's any proof that Arizona is still a red state, it's just that spending a hundred million and only showing having two points. And honestly, I think for him to be, you know, in the era of Trump, it feels like there's a lot of hidden percentage points for Republicans. Mm -hmm. His number probably has to be about five or six higher to be safely cleared Mm -hmm. for victory. Uh, Because two points, if there are hidden percentage points, are not going to look well for him. Yeah, and in most of these polls, I mean, it's hard to find one where he's at 50%. And I think for an incumbent, that's a problem. So clearly, I think he's got the got an advantage some built-in advantages but um but it's going to be another tight one and i think all these races up and down are going to be are going to be really close well um we're going to be back in a few minutes to talk with senator sean bowie about uh this past legislative session we are quickly changing the phrase thank god it's friday to thank god it's friday there's a new episode of Scarp and Friends. And today we have a very special guest. Throughout history, there have been many iconic Bowies. Sam Bowie, he was the second pick in the 1984 NBA draft, taken actually right before Michael Jordan. And David Bowie, the legendary musician and performer. We've got another Bowie here, a close friend of mine, Senator Sean Bowie, a state senator here in Arizona. Senator, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. First Bowie and first uh, Democrat on the podcast. So We've had some Democrats. Well, as a featured guest. <laughs> as a featured guest, guest, I guess yeah. that's true. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, this is a little bit like interviewing Orrin Hatch or Harry Reid, a retiring senator. Um, is there a scandal? Why aren't you running again? No scandal. I'm about half of their age, so I think it's a little bit different. Uh, no, I mean there were a lot of reasons why I decided not to run again. You know, we talked about several of them. For me, it was more of a desire to have a life outside of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I got elected at a young age, and uh, the way that I do the job is 110 percent in terms of campaigning and governing. So I really this had been the only thing in my life for a long time. So it's the desire for more balance. Uh, take a step back. Uh, take a little bit of a break, and we'll see what's next. Cheers, by the way. Cheers. Um, now, in addition to having an adult beverage here, you also have a Coke. Mm-hmm. And you're one of the few people I know, as I've gotten to know you over the years, who still drinks Coca-Cola Classic rather yes. than Diet Coke. Yes. Tell us about that. Are you, do you want to die a young age or what? <laughs> well, I like diet Dr. Pepper. That's the one diet I like. But uh, no, just never like the taste of Diet Coke. So I'm just a regular Coke guy. Tell us about, you mentioned you're a Democrat. I wasn't going to say that because I okay. like to treat everyone equally. Right. Um, a lot of people say things are more partisan than ever. What do you say? I would say it's definitely getting there. Uh, I first was elected in 2016, and uh, you know, it felt like there were more of my colleagues back then that were a little more middle of the road, more willing to be bipartisan. You know, I try really hard to build relationships with everyone, including Republicans as well. And it definitely seems like in the primaries the last couple of years, on both sides, but I'd argue more so on the Republican side, where a lot of the action is in the primary, the way the districts are drawn. Um, a lot of the action takes place in that August primary. So for me, in terms of doing my job, where I like to 
build coalitions across party lines, you know, kill bad bills, support good bills. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult. And I really do worry about the legislature next year because a lot of the folks that I have worked with are not coming back uh, along with myself. So the primary coming up soon, I think, is going to be a real indicator of what the legislature is going to look like next year. And I worry it's um, it's going to be worse. So your district was a pretty competitive district when you started running, right? Yeah, I'm the first Democrat to ever win that Senate seat in the Ahwatukee, Tempe, Chandler area. And, you know, I grew up there. I'm a product of the public schools there. I'd, I'd spent a lot of years working to elect other people to city council and legislature and, and so on. And uh, the district was trending in our direction, if you go back to 2012, 2014. So I knew it was trending in our direction. The question was, well, how long is it going to take in this progression? Um, so I ran in 2016, um, got in really early. I got in before Trump got in the presidential race. So, you know, I assumed, oh, Hillary's going to become president and it'll be a presidential year. So maybe it'll be a good year. Um, but just to see the shift, I mean, my district, uh, Mitt Romney won my district by two points mm -hmm. in 2012. And then eight years later, Trump lost it by 20. So you had over 20 point swing, uh, a lot of highly educated suburban voters who maybe lean Republican on economic issues, but are definitely not uh, on board with Trump style politics. So, so theoretically, you you won Republicans when you first ran. You had to in order to win that district, right? Yeah, I mean, my first campaign, I knocked on 15,000 doors, and they were pretty much all Republican and independent doors. So how, what was the crossover appeal there? How, were you, how did you talk to them and appeal to them? Well, for me, you know, I just ran on, uh, you know, I grew up here. I'm a product of our local public schools. Every door I knocked on, I said the same two things. I said, I want to restore education funding, and I want to bring bipartisanship back to the state capitol. So that message, it wasn't partisan. I think it's similar to messages from other candidates who have been successful throughout the state. But for me, at the end of the day, I just knew my district. And mm -hmm. I would get grief from folks who wanted a more uh, aggressive message. And I would say, I just need you to trust me that I know what I'm doing. I know my constituents. And uh, clearly, I, I've been doing something right. I won my first race. I won by a bigger margin each time. Um, so for me, it was always about how can I best serve my community? And it was more of a local message than necessarily an overly partisan message. Do you think that still works? Is that partly why you're not running? Because it may not work anymore. I think it still can. I think it depends on the district. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the factors on the ground. Um, just to be clear, I wasn't worried about not getting reelected again. Uh, I could have run one more time before I hit term limits, and I would never run for the state house. So uh, I was limited to two more years in the Senate. Uh, so for me, it just seemed like a good time to step away with you know, this was before the lines were finished in redistricting and a lot of there's a lot of turnover that's going to be there in both the Senate and the House next year. So for me, it just seemed like a good time to kind of walk away, go out on top. Uh, and that's why I made that decision. It's interesting. You mentioned that you have voted for um, elements of the budget previously. So when everyone says, oh, my God, we've never had bipartisan budgets, I always say that's not true yeah. because Senator Sean Bowie <laughs> voted for the budgets and they were bipartisan, at least elements of them. Mm -hmm. But and this is this may sound a little bit um, like I'm I'm poking fun here, but it's actually a serious question is why do you think that and I guess first of all, do you agree with the premise of what I'm about to okay. say? And then what's your response? Why don't Republicans get credit for the record investments in education 
that have happened under Governor Ducey in the last several years. I believe that if a Democratic governor had done this, there would be a parade in their honor down Central Avenue by the Teachers Union and Children's Action Alliance. You look at what Janet Napolitano did, which was heralded as this huge increase in K-12. It was peanuts compared to this. I think the all-day K was like $30 million. We're talking about billions and billions. Yeah. So what what's the deal? Why, why don't Republicans get credit? Well, let's split this up into K-12 and then we'll get into higher education. Um, so for K-12, you know, the massive hole that was created during the recession and, you know, Arizona, we have to balance our budget every year. So K-12 is half our budget. So the legislature back then, they cut a lot from K-12. We had the temporary funding from prop uh, from the ballot proposition from Governor Brewer. So we're digging out of this hole. And, and yes, we have made significant investments. Uh, but when you look at how we compare to other states, the per pupil funding, I talk a lot about the student to counselor ratio. We're still the worst in the country. Uh, we have made significant steps. I'd argue there were some decisions made in previous years that either eliminated revenue or put revenue into other areas that I would have prioritized into K-12. So this year's investment um, was significant and I voted for that budget and I've been defending it ever since. Um, on higher education, I like pointing this out. Let me, before we get to higher ed, so how much more would we need to add to, I just feel like we're screwed on these surveys. I, I think they almost structure these so that we always come in last. I mean, well, at a, lot some of the, a point, lot of the focus is on the per pupil funding. Right. Um, but one of the reasons that, you know, Paul and I and others were advocating for the special ed bucket and the opportunity weight bucket is there are a lot of these specialized areas that aren't getting funding. And I can tell you one of the things that I do as part of my job is I visit all of my K-12 schools every two years. I have over 50 of them. I go to district charter, private and parochial schools. And I can tell you the the class sizes um, not having mental health support there, um, not having. What's wrong with big, cl large class sizes? If you have a really good teacher, well, we need more, we need more good teachers, and the problem is a lot of teachers are leaving because um, they can make more in other professions uh, because they don't feel like they have the support. But would so, you prefer? Would it be better for a kid to be in a class of twenty five with a really good teacher? than a class of 15 with a not so good teacher. It feels like Obviously the class we want size really is good teachers <laughs> and that's one of the most important metrics. Um, but when you're like me, when you when you're actually on the ground and you're visiting these schools and you're talking to principals and teachers and counselors and others like the counselor piece, you know, the budget that we just passed, uh, the school safety funding was mostly for SROs, which I know a lot of which is folks important. on your side. That, that, that is important, but what's more important, in my opinion, is having that mental health support as well, given that our ratio is the worst in the country. Um, so there are a lot of factors that go into K-12. On higher education, I like pointing out, Arizona has cut more from higher education than any state in the country since 2008. <laughs> uh, I got the data to back it up. Uh, and so, we, and we've got one but time investments as if this we've year. We've never added anything. We've it's been one time mostly, and we did do in my first year. We did the uh, university bonding, which I voted for. Uh, and supported the one billion dollars, um, but every year it's one-time funding. And I can tell you from being in those negotiations on the budget this year, it was a lot easier for us to get hundreds of millions of dollars in ongoing K-12 money than it was a fraction of that for university ongoing funding, because well, there was that antipathy towards 
at least one university by some of my colleagues. Well, in full disclosure, you are employed by one of our universities. I am, and that that has nothing to do with it. No, uh, I know, but for, it, for me, you know, making those investments not just in our universities but our community colleges, uh, those are those are investments that we need to make if we want to bring the kind of good paying high quality jobs to the state. It can't just be tax cuts and regulations. <laughs> but I I don't think it is. I mean, you look at the investments and I would I would say that I think it's hard for people to drive around and they see the giant copper buildings well, and a lot of those are re- <laughs> the research buildings that pay for okay, themselves. Okay. Well, so I think people look at this and they're like how are the universities we don't see the struggle we don't see where the universities, I mean, you're making it sound like it's like a third world country no, on the ASU not. campus. And, you know, one of the things about ASU, Arizona, is ASU has been named, you know, number one in innovation for yeah. how many years now. But the reason they've had to do that is that they've had to go out and find new revenue streams because of the cuts from the legislature. Good. So their ASU online program is great. What's They're wrong with finding other things. revenue streams? It, there's nothing wrong with finding other revenue streams, but for me, if we want to expand our engineering school at ASU, we want to expand the medical school at U of A. We just did this investment in nursing, mm-hmm. which I think is great. Uh, one thing I want to spotlight, spotlight in our budget that we prioritized and got funding for was the Promise Program scholarships. Mm-hmm. You know, until last year, we didn't have a statewide financial aid program like most states do. We used to have one and got cut during the recession. So now we're spending, I think it's 25 or 30 million a year ongoing for this Promise Program scholarship to help low-income families mm-hmm. send their kids to college. I think that's really important. So I do too. I'm open to how we do it, but I think there needs to be more of a priority on not seeing universities as the enemy instead of seeing them as really important drivers of our economy going forward. Well, I don't see them as the enemy, and I'm the product of yeah. the better university two, <laughs> of the two universities. You went to ASU? Arizona. And so I, and I think I was just down meeting with Bobby Robbins. I think that he's doing amazing things. I think ASU, as you said, is a national leader. COVID with the testing and everything. So, I mean, I I think NAU has a ton to offer and hopefully the the new president can bring more of that to life. But so I, I think we've got great universities. What bothers me is just this narrative of that they're kind of like, collapsing and falling apart before our eyes or that they're not being funded and i think that again this is where and it's the same on k-12 where people pretend i mean we're not living in new mexico or one of these states with stagnant population Mm -hmm. we have huge growth we have huge influx Mm -hmm. so that is going to um to animate some of these rankings on k-12 because we have a huge influx Mm -hmm. of new students we have a huge influx of new teachers which is why maybe on a uh if you chart it our teacher salaries are lower than a state that's not hiring new teachers we got school districts in texas putting up billboards here trying to recruit teachers to to move there because they they pay a higher salary um so for me just being on the ground being in the schools hearing what it's like that's where my perspective comes from, and that's why I'm advocating for additional support. So one thing about you is Uh-oh. that you wear we crazy socks. I wouldn't say they're crazy. Would you have any cool ones on today? I kind of have some boring ones, <laughs> some Argyle socks on today, pink and blue on there. Uh, I have so many socks, though, because people know me as a sock guy. And for my birthday or Christmas every year, I, mean, I have too many pairs of socks. It's just I got two drawers full of socks now, so I got to pivot to something else, maybe crazy ties or something. You uh, are going to be working, I'm, I've heard, uh, with... Breaking uh, news. <laughs> breaking news with former uh, Gilbert 
uh, mayor, mm -hmm. America's mayor, as we call her, yeah. her here on this show, Jen Daniels, on a new report from the Common Sense Institute about mm -hmm. our housing crisis. Yes. Tell us about that um, and what, what you want to accomplish with that, what you want to look at. Yeah, I'm excited to work with America's mayor. Uh, and look into this further. Uh, housing policy is actually an issue that I dealt with a lot this year. It, it's been a focus of the legislature, not just affordable housing, but homelessness and other uh, issues having to do with housing. And it's one of those weird issues where, you know, some of the regulations and responsibilities at the federal level, some are at the state level, and some are at the local level. So it does require some cooperation. But I think anyone who's tried to buy a house recently or has seen their rent go up, uh, with all the population growth that we have here, uh, recognizes that we do have a pretty serious problem around housing. So how do we tackle that? Uh, we've done some things at the state level. Last year, we passed a um, low-income housing tax credit, which I think has been helpful. There have been a few projects already announced about that. Uh, we just approved the housing uh, trust fund appropriation this year of $60 million, which I think will be great. Um, but again, a lot of this, a lot of these decisions are made at the local level. So how can we empower cities which is usually not the view with the legislature. Uh, how can we empower cities to be more proactive and incentivize them to develop more affordable housing um, around zoning policy and other things? So I'm, I'm excited to dive into that and see what we can come up with. Well, I think it's a very cool project, the fact that you'll be working with a Republican on it and, and uh, teaming up. Um, it's a huge issue. It's something at the, the top of mind for everyone. And, uh, and I will say, you know, look at this discussion. Uh, clearly, we don't agree on everything, but I think what stands out is you're not a bomb thrower, and there's a lot of f Democrats uh, who, if they were on here, I, I wouldn't have been as easy on. So I appreciate it. We're going to be right back with a new segment with Senator Bowie called Off the Record. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. So, Sean, off the record, if you were governor for the day, what would be the one executive order you would issue? Oh, dear. You got to be fast on these. You can't think about it too much. I would need time to think about that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you order at Starbucks? I usually go to Dunkin' Donuts, uh, but for me, just usually iced coffee. Domino's or Pizza Hut? Probably Pizza Hut. What was your favorite show on ABC's TGIF Friday lineup in the 80s and 90s? 90s for me. Uh, I love Boy Meets World. That was a good one. Did yeah. you watch the reboot, Girl Not Meets yet. World? <laughs> I got to watch that. All right. Well, thank you, Senator Sean Bowie. appreciate you being here. It's so great to see you as always. Good right. luck. What, what is next for you, by the way? You know, I'm like DeAndre Ayton. I'm a free agent right now. So I'm, I'm having conversations. I'm talking to people. You know, we'll see. If anyone out there knows of anything, let me know. He's on the market. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Scarp. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please subscribe to listen to all of our new episodes.